Praise the Lord. It's great to be back, and I want to say thank you to everyone who prayed for us uh, on our trip. We just completed a, a massive trip retracing Paul's missionary journeys over thousands of miles, three countries, buses, ships, trains, and it averaged about 20,000 steps a day. So it was a massive trip, and we praise God for that. And I'm fresh off of four different flights on three different airlines, and I arrived last night. So good morning. <laughs> good morning. Praise the Lord. So <laughs> I'm th- very thankful for that. And um, this text this morning is a text about prayer. And as we traveled on this trip, Uh, Many of us from Kenwood, we experienced the power of prayer. We saw answers to prayer along the way. And there was one night on the ship that we gathered all together, and I had asked for a designated room. And we came into the room, and as we got into the room, uh, there were a bunch of people already in the room doing karaoke. And the people on the trip kind of looked at me like I thought this was going to be like a sharing and prayer time. And then others, so you could see them kind of recalibrating, like, what great hymns do I know? Are there any hymns on the karaoke? And, and, um, and, I, and I went bold. I went right up to the DJ. I said, look, I've reserved this room, and we're going to have, like, a prayer time in here. And he looked at me like, we've got karaoke in here. And uh, I said, what room is this? And he told me the room name. I said, I guess we're in the room upstairs. So he showed me how to go upstairs. We got in the room upstairs that was reserved for us, and there was no karaoke. And, but there was a powerful time uh, just on the water, halfway through the, ship, through the trip, sharing how God had met each of us along the way and how he had answered prayers along the way. And we weren't just learning about the historicity of our faith, although that was an important element. We were learning that the God who we read about in the New Testament is alive and that he is at work in the world and that he is he is reaching out to the nations as we sit here now. And so I'm grateful to be back. I'm grateful for this chance to learn and grow. Ask people who were on the trip about it. Ask to see some of their pictures. Ask them how God met them, though, along the way. And you're going to be encouraged by what you hear. This morning, we look at this text that Paul wrote to Timothy. It's one of his last letters. And he writes to Timothy, and in this series this summer, we're looking at passing the baton of discipleship faithfully to the next generation. And Paul had a discipling relationship with Timothy over many, many years. He saw him like a, like a son. And so in these last letters, they're filled with mature wisdom and clear instruction about priorities and ministry and in the Christian life. And though these letters are some of his most personal letters... They apply to all of us who want to take following Christ seriously. So I want to ask you, as we get started in this text, do you want to open your heart just to say, Lord, I want to take following you seriously? Will you just assent to that with me? I want that. I want that for you. But I can't force that on you. But if you say at the beginning, Lord, just I say yes to you right at the beginning. So let's look at this text. And this text has a lot to say to us. But the central idea of it is around prayer. And I imagine that all of us could grow in our life of prayer. And you know what? That includes me too. So he says to Timothy, first of all, that's a big phrase in verse 1, isn't it? First of all, most important of all, I urge that 
supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Paul wants Timothy to be a man of prayer. To pray in all kinds of different ways for all kinds of people. Prayer in the Bible is described in many different ways. And Paul gives just four of the rich vocabulary. Don't sweat the difference between a supplication and a prayer. But just notice that there's a rich variety and mode of praying. Asking God. Praying for his will to be done. Interceding. Sometimes that's just standing in between on behalf of someone else. Sometimes it's just giving thanks back to God. And sometimes we think of prayer just as the things we're asking for. But a rich part of prayer is beginning or ending with thanking God for all the answers to prayer. And it motivates our life of prayer and communion with God. He says they should be made for all people, all kinds of people. Samuel Gordon said that the great people of the earth today are people who pray. He said, I don't mean those who talk about prayer, those who say they believe in prayer, those who explain prayer, but those who actually take the time to pray. They don't have time, just like everyone else. It must be taken from something else. That something else is important. It's very important. It's pressing, but it's less important and pressing than prayer. These are the people who put prayer first, and then they group everything else in life and their schedule around and after that. These are the people who are doing the most for God in winning souls and solving problems and awakening churches and in supplying men and women for mission. These are the people who pray. Matilda uh, Andro said this. She said, when prayer has become secondary or incidental, it's lost its power. Those who are conspicuously men and women of prayer are those who use prayer as they use food or air or light or money. Those are powerful things, aren't they? She says, the man on his knees has a leverage underneath the mountains that can cast it into the sea. Time spent alone with God is not wasted. It changes us. It changes our surroundings. And every Christian who would live a life that counts would live and have the power for service based in prayer. Amen. And he tells Timothy, after knowing him for decades and after being in ministry for decades, the most important thing that you need to do is be a man of prayer. And as we'll see in this chapter, the rest of the chapter is really about that. Because it's not just the pastor who needs to be a man or woman of prayer, but it's all of the congregation who have to be mighty in prayer. He says pray in all kinds of different ways, but, and pray for all kinds of different people. Look at verse 2. He says pray for kings and all those who are in high positions. The Greek word in verse 2, kings, is the word that's used to translate the Roman or Latin word for emperor. And he says, pray for the emperor or regional kings and rulers. Pray for those who have positions of authority in civil society and include them in your prayer. And pray specifically that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's an amazing thing to pray for. Sometimes we're tempted to make an idol of the state and society in which we live. And at the opposite end, we are sometimes tempted to want to overthrow the state and society in which we live. 
But the Christian position is in the middle because our highest allegiance is to King Jesus. And his kingdom never ends. Kingdoms rise and fall. They come and go. I mean, day one of our trip, we just got oriented in Istanbul. And as people were still jet-lagged, like, what just happened to me? We flew across the Atlantic Ocean, and the next thing you know, we're on a Vosphorus cruise. And we're looking at the gate between Asia and Europe, and we're looking at centuries of history. And we're walking past the Hippodrome of Constantine, and I'm just pointing out, incidentally, oh, that, just, that happens to be the obelisk of Tutmosis III, who could have been one of the pharaohs of the Exodus. And people, I'm just keeping people awake. But we've got like the kingdoms of this world just standing around us. And you know what? They have come and gone. But the kingdom of Jesus Christ keeps growing. Judaism in the first century had a unique position in the Roman Empire. As the cult of the emperors grew and they required people to pray to them and worship them, For success and prosperity, Judaism was granted an exception because the Romans valued antiquity. And Jews said, you know, when Rome was founded in 753 B.C., like that's the time of Isaiah. Like our story goes way back. And for the Roman world, earlier is better, older is better. Some of you are thinking, I wish I was Roman. We live in a culture where like Taylor Swift is in town, like it's going to shut down the whole city. You know, uh, we live in a culture that's like uh, everything important happens before you get to be 20, and then it just is like slow decline. The, the first century world thinks differently, that, that things that are older are better. And so Jews and Judaism were granted an exception, and they were allowed not to pray to the emperor, but just to pray for the emperor. And that happened in the temple service, and that was a tradition that Paul grew up in, and he's actually passing that on now to the churches which is a helpful posture for the Christian in society. Pray for, and you know what? Let's just remind ourselves that Paul is asking for prayers for Nero here. So sometimes people will say, well, I just pray for the good leaders. The New Testament doesn't give you that choice. You pray for the leaders, whoever they are. And you pray for those in civil authority, that we would lead a a quiet life, a life that is not turbulent, And why that is as important as the passage unfolds. This is not a prayer for Christians to just live a casual, pain-free life. This is a prayer that society would not be in upheaval and turbulence so that Christians can live out their faith in the world and cause the gospel to spread. That's what the prayer is for. Pray for those in leadership. And remember, on Paul's first missionary journey on Cyprus... On that first trip, the Roman governor himself became a Christian. You just never know whose heart's going to be open. Remember that Paul's own ministry, though, in Ephesus ended because of a civic disturbance and a riot in the theater. And so he says, pray for everyone. But why? Pray that that we might live a godly life in society, that the church can be the church in society, that Christian witness can be put forward without restriction or oppression or persecution, that the church can live as the church in the world. That's what we're praying for. Why? This is good. When we are who we are supposed to be, this is good and pleases God, our Savior, he says in verse 3. Why? Because God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 
We are called to be a people of prayer, earnest prayer, not just for our own personal needs to be met, but to be a people committed to prayer that the God who desires all nations to come to know and believe in his Son and recognize the truth of the gospel, that that unfolds day by day, week by week, month by month, through the life and vibrant witness of the church. And let me just ask all of us right now, is that what you pray for regularly? Are you praying for that enough? I'm going to guess that I speak for all of us and say, no, I've got room to grow. I've got room to grow that I desire the people around me to be saved. And I desire them to come to a knowledge of the truth. What is the truth? People ask that. It's controversial today. People, you can find one statement here. You can find a contradictory statement over here. What's the truth? Paul's very clear on the truth. The truth for Paul to Timothy is in verse 5 and 6. The truth is that there's one God. There is one God. That's it. And, and there is one mediator between God and humanity. And that mediator is Messiah Jesus. If you want to know God, there's only one way to get to God. And that is through Jesus Christ. And you can have different opinions about all kinds of different subjects. And you can care about different things. But Paul cares to know one thing. And that is Jesus Christ. And him crucified. And he wants the people around him to know one thing. That there's one God, one only, one mediator between God and humanity. And that's Jesus Christ. And that begs the question, how is it the case that Jesus Christ mediates me to God? And he says it in verse 6 in such a beautiful way. It's the gospel in a relative clause. It's the gospel in one breath. The gospel in one breath is Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for everybody. And if there's one thing you need to know before you leave planet Earth, it's that. Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom. And that language of ransom is language that's used in the slave market. It's language that's used to describe people who are entrapped, enslaved, and they cannot free themselves. And someone comes... And pays the ransom and says, they belong to me now. And they're set free. It's language used in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament to describe the exodus as freedom from slavery. And the price for your life and mine is paid. It's paid. One God, one mediator, one saving act. Jesus Christ on the cross giving his life. To purchase yours. And that's what he wants the whole world to know. And that's what he wants the whole church to pray that the whole world knows. Can we get on board with that? I want to care infinitely more about that than anything else. That's why I love how he starts off saying, first of all, most important of all, you got to be about praying for this. It was a testimony given at the proper time, the decisive moment of the ages. And he says in verse 7, for this, this truth, this gospel, I was appointed a preacher, a herald, an apostle, a missionary, a teacher of the nations in faith and truth. 
On our journey, when we finally reached the city of Rome, our first stop as we drove into the city was to stop at a large church, a basilica called St. Paul Outside the Walls. And when you come inside the church, it's a magnificent church. And as you move towards the front of the church, you realize that the church is built over a grave. It's built over a sarcophagus, and there are human bones in there. And the whole church, this massive church, is built over that. About 15 years ago, archaeologists and scholars drilled a hole into that sarcophagus, a very small hole, and took DNA samples of the bones. And the published findings of that was that those are the bones of a first century Jewish man. And so archaeologists and scholars really do believe that the church remembered the site where Paul had died and commemorated that. And this church is built actually over Paul's bones. And it's really moving. You can't see the bones, but you can see the, the bone box. But as you come into the church, in the courtyard, there's a statue of Paul. And he has a sword and a scroll. And the sword is the sword of the Spirit and the scroll, the Word of God. And underneath is a Latin inscription. And it just says, Herald of the Truth and Teacher of the Nations. And it's from this verse. I don't think Paul would have liked to have a statue of himself. But if he could be remembered as someone who heralded the truth of the gospel and taught the nations, I think he could have, would have said, that's who I am. That's who Jesus called me to be. This saving truth must be disseminated among the nations. It, it must be what we care about the most. It must be what we pray for most often, most regularly. And then that's his concern now for the whole church. He's been telling Timothy, make sure your ministry is about that. Pray for that. And now he says that the rest of us should be praying for the same things. Let's look at it. In verse 8, he says, I desire that in every place men should pray. See, we haven't left the topic of praying for the nations. I desire that men should pray, and men praying are hindered by a couple of different things. He says they should be lifting holy hands. This frees everyone. Some of us from a Pentecostal background are like, praise the Lord. It's like, okay, hallelujah, right? I mean, amen, right? Some of you are like, yes. And uh, so you can go ahead and do that. It encourages me. It blesses Pastor Alberto, and it's biblical. So as you just lift them up, and you lift up hands, which is a, it's an ancient gesture of, of petition. You know, I, I have nothing, but I'm looking to you. And that's, we lift our hands. But men get blocked in Paul's wise experience from a life of prayer, and they get blocked by a couple of things. Sometimes they get blocked by their own anger. The text says their wrath. And they get blocked by, the ESV says, quarreling. If you look at some other translations, they say, uh, without anger or arguing. The CSB. The NIV says, without anger or disputing. The New Living Translation says, free from anger and controversy. Men 
are addressed in this passage to move away from the temptation to be angry because that will block your prayer. And they're also challenged by Paul to move away from a mindset of arguing and disputing with one another. And, you know, when you get together with a group of men, sometimes this happens. Sometimes men, when they're just all together, they, they talk about uh, their achievements and they rank them. They talk about um, their, they try to justify their value in one another's eyes. Uh, sometimes they try to make sure that they find ways to communicate that they know a little bit more about you on this particular point. And men feel good and respected and valued when they're right and people recognize their rightness. I'm so right about that. <laughs> and Paul says, guys, stop doing that. And focus instead on being men who pray. That's what he wants. Be men who pray. Don't get distracted by trying to one-up one another. Be men who are recognized as men who pray for the salvation of the lives around them. And be men who are motivated to act in such a way that the societal conditions around us would allow the gospel to flourish. Now, even though this is addressed to men... It doesn't mean that it's okay for the women to argue. just want to be clear about that. Amen? Just because it's addressed to men doesn't mean like the ladies like, whoo, that's good. Because uh, that means because it's addressed to men, that means that we can argue and um, be angry with one another just all we want. It's not true. It's not the case. This general truth applies to the whole church. But notice that it, the concern is to be a community of prayer. In verse 9, he says, women also must be women of prayer. That first word, likewise, carries with it this whole topic of praying pastors, praying congregations, and says, likewise, women should be women of prayer. And he warns women against two things that can distract them. And he says, first of all, is that women should adorn themselves with respectable or modest clothing and should not be overly concerned with their hair or their uh, jewelry or their expensive clothes. And uh, why is that? Well, I talked to some really godly wise women about this text, and they, they took me on the inside. They did. I, I got to tell you, I was standing on the outside of this. I was on the outside of this, and if I hadn't talked with some godly women about this text, I was going to preach this text to say women uh, should dress modestly because it can distract men in church from listening. But the godly women I talked to said, that's not actually what it's about. I said, really? Tell me a little bit more about that because, like, I'm preaching this pretty soon. <laughs> so, uh, so they said, no, it's actually not about that. They said the women, they dress up because it's a way of ranking and showing their status and worth to the other women. They said, it's the other women that are looking at what we're wearing. I said, really? So thanks for saying that. So I'm getting some, that's true. From the, like, so, um, so listen, 
like, be less concerned about what other people think of you and be more concerned about praying for salvation and the gospel to spread. Amen? Amen. And he says, women should be women of prayer. Don't give so much attention to your appearance to display your worth. But in verse 10, what's proper for women who profess godliness, adorn yourself with, with good works, with godly living. Be noticed for your service and your ministry and your hospitality and your encouragement and your presence and be recognized for that. Just like men have a couple of different ways that they get distracted from prayer, women have a couple of ways. The first is giving too much attention to how they look to one another. The second, in verse 11, is getting distracted by talking too much or out of turn in a way that prevents others from hearing the gospel. These next verses are really important. They're important because they flow within this topic. They're also important because these verses have been talked about a lot in the last 40 or 50 years. So I'm going to plead with you to pay close attention uh, about this. Because it's really important that we understand this passage well. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. The antecedent to submissiveness, the reference, is to women who profess godliness, that is, who fear the Lord. So this isn't just a generic statement for, that women should be submit to, to everyone and everything. It's a statement that women should be submissive to God. And that she should learn in a quiet way. Now, I had the privilege of having amazing teachers. I've got three master's degrees and a PhD in Bible, and I'm just hooked on it. And I was taught by my best teachers that language proceeds by the verbs. Pay attention to the verbs. So what's the verb in this verse? The verb, it's an imperative, and the verb is let women learn. It's the language of discipleship. It's the verbal form of the noun, mathetes, to be a learner. So what Paul cares about, which is a little bit hard to see in translation, what he cares about is not that the women are quiet. What he cares about is that the women are learning. That's the verb. The verb is learn, but learn it in a way that's not disruptive or distracting to others. And this is astonishing because women weren't going to school in the first century. Jesus welcomed women as disciples. And Paul welcomes women in the congregational context and welcomes them and gives them the language of learners. They're to be engaged disciples of Jesus, attentive to the word proclaimed, that they can share it too. He says in verse 12, I don't allow or I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She should be quiet. What's going on here? This is one of the most controversial verses in all of Paul. I mean, I noticed just a slight hesitation, even in the scripture readers. Did you hear it? I mean, it was subtle, very subtle, but I heard it. I love you guys. Let's look at this closely because it's really important. And let me just say up front what's at stake. What's at stake is... Is Paul saying that half the congregation 
cannot serve in any public ministry. That's pretty big. That's pretty big. Some of you are like, I'm leaning forward now. Taken out of context, that's important. If you take this verse out of context, it's been understood by some to mean that women can't teach. They can't even speak in church. And if you look at some other translations, the CSB says that women are to be silent. The King James says they should be in silence. The NRSV says she's to keep silent. So some people read the Bible and think, wow, women shouldn't talk in church. And that would be scary. That would exclude half the congregation. And we have to do the hard work of listening to this text well. When people ask me, why are you supportive of women in ministry and speaking in church? My first response is to say, because I believe the Bible. And they say, well, tell me a little bit more. And I say, Paul cannot mean that women are silent in the church because in 1 Corinthians 11, the women are speaking, praying, and prophesying. And you can't do that in silence. And that would mean that Paul either totally changed his mind from Corinthians to 1 Timothy, or the Bible is contradictory. And I don't think either of those are very appealing. Most translations, thankfully, though, render this word as to be quiet, not silent. Why is that? That is important. It's important because it's the same word that's used in 1 Timothy 2.2. When he says pray that we would lead a quiet life, it's the same word. And why does he want a quiet life? He wants a quiet life, meaning an undisturbed life, an undisturbed, non-turbulent society. Why? So people can hear the gospel. He doesn't want the world to be in absolute chaos so people can hear and the church can live out its vocation. And so that's the same word that's used here. You can't do evangelism very well in a silent world, right? So if it means quiet in verse 2, it's got to mean quiet in the same chapter. So what's the issue? The issue is the women were being talkative in the church, which can happen. I mean, believe it or not, I've preached over a thousand times up here, and occasionally people have talked while I've been preaching. (laughs) I mean, occasionally. It's happened. And I've done a couple of homiletical glares. You know, and they're not picking up on it. And they're just talking. And I know they're not talking about the sermon because they're talking about other things and they're not, they're not flowing, but it's distracting. And, and, and he says, be, be, be learners in the congregation, but do it in a quiet way. Don't be distracting. Is that really what he's talking about? I think it is. This word, by the way, I, you have to remember I'm fresh, fresh from Greece. Like 24 hours ago, I was in Greece Please ask to see my pictures at some point. Um, but one of the th- you hear this word all the time in the Greek grocery store. This controversial, hundreds of academic articles about it, you hear it in the grocery store all the time. And you hear it in the grocery store from mothers. And when mothers are, are going down the aisles of the Greek grocery store and their kids are talking and they're getting too loud. You, you know it as a parent. Like, you can, kids can talk, but then all of a sudden, it's like there's this, there's this threshold, right? And you crossed it. 
and now it's, it's you're, you're, you're too loud, and I can't think clearly, and, and uh, the people around me can't think clearly, and so Greek mothers tell their kids, quiet down a little bit. That's what they say, and that's the word that's used here. Quiet down, just quiet down. He's not telling the women, don't speak in church. He's telling them, though, don't be talkative when the word of God is being expounded. Because then you're not going to learn, and you're also going to distract other people from learning, and you're not going to be about praying if you're talking about other stuff. Does that apply to men as well? It does. Men, be quiet. (laughs) There are times to just be quiet so we can focus on the Lord together. The second thing he says, though, and this is, again, very important. He says, I don't allow the women to exercise authority that's what the ESV says if you look at other translations you'll see this is rendered very differently in a lot of translations it's rendered differently because this word authentic is only used here in the New Testament it's the only time Paul uses this word and that makes it difficult so what do you do if somebody uses a word just once well you have to look at how everybody else used that word And scholars have looked into that, and they've done an exhaustive searches of how is this word used, and it's actually the word where we get the word authenticate from. What does that mean when you authenticate someone? That means when you decide, like, if they're right or not. And in the other usage outside of Paul, this word has a negative connotation. I think the best translation is that he tells Timothy, I don't let women be domineering in the context of the church life. And whether to their husbands or, or, or to leadership or just to one another. And I think that's his great concern. Why is attentiveness so important? He ends the passage with an analogy from Scripture He says to the women, remember that Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but but the woman was, and became a transgressor. And I think Paul's using this image to remind us that any of us can be wrong. Remember the issue he said for the women is don't be in this domineering position of telling everyone what to do all the time, and that's distracting. And the, the, the quotation or allusion to Genesis 3 is just a reminder, like, remember, we all can be wrong. I don't think this is just some generic treatise on the role of men and women just generally for all time. I think this is a specific admonition for the church to be a church of prayer, to be a church that cares for salvation, for men to be men of prayer and not to be distracted. For women to be women of prayer and not to be distracted, but to care about the gospel spreading. He says that women will be saved or protected, preserved through childbearing. Remember, that was a curse in Genesis. If they continue in faith, love, holiness with self-control. That's the issue. Don't be out of control and distracted and distracting others. But be focused, focused on prayer, focused on witness, focused on salvation for the nations. Sadly, Christians are divided about this. I don't know if you've noticed. 
but especially in the last couple of generations, Christians sometimes are angrily divided about this. And isn't it ironic that that anger illustrates the very warning of this passage? The very warning of this passage is don't let secondary topics distract you from prayer, evangelism, and discipleship. Don't let other things and don't be so eager to share your theological opinions that you don't care about praying for the lost people around you. Don't talk with one another so much and get those areas where you disagree with one another and talk all about that that you're never opening your home to your non-Christian neighbors who want to know about Jesus. And it's, it's sad and tragic that this verse taken out of context has been talked about so much as, well, we got to figure out what the men and women do in church. And then, and then if you're right about that, then we can work together. If you think differently about that, I don't know. And that posture and that attitude actually illustrates the very thing that Paul is saying, don't do that. Do you see that? So don't do that. <laughs> and that's true for me too. So be people of prayer and evangelism, disciples and commitment. I want to be clear in this sermon that I am persuaded that Paul is supportive of women serving in the body of Christ as full and equal members. And I am persuaded of that by the observable pattern and practice and language that Paul uses across his whole ministry. And I've got 12 reasons why I think that. And because of the time, I'm going to give you five. <laughs> Here they are, just quickly. Why does the long trajectory of Paul's praxis in ministry lead us to see that he's actually supportive of women standing up and reading scripture or praying publicly or being evangelists or teaching once they've got a clear grasp of the gospel just like any, for anyone? The first is 1 Corinthians 11.5. The participles are feminine. The women are speaking and praying audibly. That's important. It can't mean that women are silent then if they're doing that. And the context there is the church. Number two, Paul relativizes the social distinction of men and women in light of the gospel. In Galatians 3, he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. You are one in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean we're genderless or we're ethnic-less or we have a st our status list, but it means that all of those things are diminished as ways of ranking society and the church. What's more important is our oneness in Christ. Number three, he entrusts his most important letter, Romans, to a woman. And on our trip, we stood in the ruins of the Roman dock at Cancrias, and we stood there in the ruins, jutting out into the, into the sea. And I just, we paused. And we just said, you know, Romans, like, went out into the world from this harbor. And it went out into the world, and it shaped history. And hundreds of thousands of people have trusted Jesus because of that document. 
But it went out from that harbor in the hands of a woman named Phoebe, who is a leader in that church. And Paul wouldn't do that if he didn't think that women could be reading the scripture publicly. Because she'd bring it to the church and she'd read it. Number four, in Romans 16, in all the list of names, Paul greets several women and couples as partners in ministry. And number five, in this little precious text in Philippians 4, he describes Euodia and Syntyche, which are these two women with very Greek names. Evodia means the good way, and Syntyche means uh, like good luck, good fortune. And in Philippians 4, he says, Euodia and Syntyche agree in the Lord. They're having some kind of conflict. We don't know what it is. That can happen. But how he describes these women is so important for his view of women. He says, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul's language and treatment of women should help us to recognize he's supportive of them serving and ministering. He wants them to be learners and to grasp the gospel. And he wants all of us to be men and women committed in prayer. I mean, really praying. And this passage challenges all of us to be more devoted in prayer. Praying for people to be saved. Praying for the gospel to be understood, shared, and believed. And of all the things I experienced on the trip, this was the greatest for me. It was seeing the power of prayer in the church today lived out. We came to the site of ancient Colossae. And Colossae is one of only three sites in Turkey that have not been excavated. And so it's just a huge mound of dirt and grass and thistles. And you climb up to the top and you look on the ground and there's Roman marble building fragments just jutting out from the ground. It hasn't been excavated. And we're standing up there, and the city is covered in ruins, and yet we were there as the body of Christ. And everyone left and climbed back down the mound, and just a couple of us were still up there. And as we were up there alone, I heard some footsteps behind me. And I turned, and there was an Asian family there. And I looked at them, and I said, where are you from? And they said, Grand Rapids, Michigan. <laughs> and I said... I said, I was born an hour from there. I said, wow. I said, what are you doing now? They said, we're missionaries in Tokyo. And I said, will you pray for us? And this man just prayed. And he finished and he said, will you pray for us? And we just prayed for an explosion of the gospel in Japan. 
And I said, our church has a Japanese ministry. And they just wept. And we walked down that mound knowing that Jesus Christ was alive and that he'd heard our prayers. I got to the east where the western edge of Turkey and was overlooking the Aegean Sea and I came to have dinner with the group and we gathered and we're overlooking the waters and people were sitting down to eat and, and, and I met this man and asked where he was from. He said, I'm from Russia. And he said, where are you from? I said, I'm from the United States. He said, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. He said, I'm a pastor. I said, what kind of church do you pastor? He said, I'm in charge of all the Baptist churches in Russia. (laughs) And I looked around and I said, uh, who are all these people around you? He said, there are 30 pastors here. He said, it's the first time we've been able to leave the country because of the turbulent situation we're in. And we've come here to Turkey for a retreat and to be taught and encouraged in our faith. And I said, well, who's teaching you? And he said, this man. And it was Dr. Dan Block. And I said, Dr. Block, it's great to see you. He's our main speaker at Kenwood next April. And he had just emailed me two days ago that I got it on the bus. And I said, Dr. Block, I should have just told you, let's meet for dinner at Kushadasi. And the Russian pastor, Lear, he said, how long are you going to be here? I said, "Um, we're leaving tomorrow. He said, well, then we need to meet for breakfast. And we met for breakfast. And I said, how is the church in Russia? And he said, it's difficult. And he showed me pictures of pastors being arrested and showed me pictures of the theological seminary just arbitrarily being closed. And I saw the name on the seminary. And... um, I said, that's Moscow Theological Seminary. He said, yeah. I said, who, who gave the most significant gift to build that seminary? And he said, Carl and Edith Linder gave the gift for that. He said, do you know them? <laughs> I said, I'm their pastor. And we just hugged. And then he said, pray for us and then he showed me some pictures and he said suffering is just part of following Jesus but he said look at these pictures and he showed me a picture of 35 people in white garments lining up along the Moscow River getting ready to be baptized he showed me a picture of a a trench cut in a frozen river and people getting ready to be baptized And he said, the church is growing. Pray for us. And we did. When we got to Athens, our Turkish guide came with us. It was astonishing. Our Turkish guide was experiencing the love of Christ through our group 
And she did something she'd never done before. And she said, my work with you is done, but I, want, I don't want to leave you. And so she came with us to Greece. And there on Mars Hill, we were gathered together at Mars Hill and speaking about Paul sharing Christ. And our Turkish guide sat with another member of our team on top of Mars Hill, and she prayed to receive Christ. God's working in the world. When we got to Rome, our guide in Rome guided us through the city, and we finished, and we were standing just opposite the Colosseum. And the whole group left, it was the end of the formal tour. It was just me and Christine and, and Dina. And I just felt this prompting from the Lord. And I said, Dina, can we pray for you? And she said, oh, yes. She said, my father died eight years ago. And it was such a shock to me that I lost my sense of smell. I've had two surgeries and no doctor's been able to help me. I said, can we pray for you? And there with the Colosseum, right behind us, we grabbed hands and Christine just prayed for her for healing. And I prayed for her that the aroma of Christ would be the first thing she smelled. And she grabbed our hands and she hugged us. And she said, I'm never going to forget you. That's why, beloved, we've got to be men, women, and a church of prayer. Because God is at work in the world and he wants us to pray and he wants people to come to know him and he doesn't want us to get distracted in any way from that main effort. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are good and gracious, powerful and victorious. And Lord, as we end our time of worship this morning, we, we want to partake together of your broken body and your shed blood. And I want to invite you now to just to prepare your heart with me. If you have trusted Jesus, then I invite you to partake with us. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so if you have put your trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to partake with us. And then we're going to stand and praise his name. So let's stand now and prepare to partake. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning, for your work and your word in the world, and for bringing us into your kingdom. And we hear your voice this morning. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we hear your voice. This cup is the new covenant poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me.